Our great King, would you speak now to minister to our hearts? You know how our hearts betray us, how our flesh draws us away, how we think that we are on track, and yet we're lied to by our own desires, our own coveting, our own thinking that we need certain things to make us happy. What we need, Lord, is more of you, more of your wisdom, more of your grace and your perspective, more of a taste of the sufficiency of Christ and the fullness of his forgiveness. Lord, would you grant us more of that today? Would you speak by your word? This is what we ask, for you to be glorified and for us to be helped. We ask in Christ's name, amen. I, um, I hear that there's uh, some kind of a game today. I, I'm not sure that I know a lot about that. But there is um, another game. Uh, it's a game that, uh, that you're playing. It's, it's a game that, that I am also playing. It's a game that you play all the time. Trust me, you play. I know you play this game. The thing is, um, about this game, you're playing it wrong. Um, you don't even really understand the rules. You don't get what the strategy is. And you don't even know the purpose for playing this game. It's called the comparison game. We're going to get some new wisdom by the grace of God on that today. We come to the last of the Ten Commandments, that commandment about coveting. Let me read to you our verse which launches this message for this morning, Exodus chapter 20 in verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. This commandment, uh, coming at the end of the ten, seems a little bit mundane, in a way. Seems a little bit anticlimactic. I mean, shouldn't we have, like, ended with murder? Like one of the biggies? Something like that? For such a vaunted record as these ten words, which Scripture calls the Ten Commandments. To, to finish with coveting almost feels like, well, Moses kind of ran out of ideas, and he's like, oh, yeah, we'll throw in this one at the end. But coveting actually is a very fitting summation of the commandments because it is at the heart of law-breaking, coveting is. Coveting shows dissatisfaction in our hearts, with God and with his provision. When we say, that is what I want and I must have it at all costs. Coveting places something else on the throne of our affection, saying, this is my desire in a place where only the Lord should be. This, coveting, it dishonors his name. In short, this commandment addresses that which is a transgression of the commands of the first table of the law, the first four, those directed toward God. And then, what about the second table of the law, that which is addressed towards our interaction with others? Well, coveting treats people as objects, or it values them after objects, or it actually views them as obstacles to getting the objects that we covet, so that Commands 6 through 9 are quite often broken once we start coveting 
sometimes in their entirety they are broken, as we see in a number of places in Scripture. So if we begin coveting, we'll fail the second table of the law as well. It is impossible at one and the same time to covet and to love God and love neighbor. We just can't do both simultaneously. Coveting is really the flashpoint at the cascade of sins in any number of instances in Scripture. David with Bathsheba started with his coveting and all of the devastation that followed and followed him for all the generations of his own household. Ahab with poor Naboth and his desirable vineyard and the staccato-like breaking of the other commandments, that all began with Ahab's coveting. In the days of Joshua, there was Achan who coveted the spoils and his actions actually led to the defeat of the nation's army and the death of dozens of men. Started with coveting. And then there's Eve who saw the desirable fruit and by her coveting unleashed onto the world sin as we know it. This morning with this commandment, what I want to do is go right to the giver of the law. I want to go to Jesus. You know that Jesus is the giver of the law. I want to go to the giver and the fulfiller and the redeemer and the transformer of the law. And I want to hear his perspective as it addresses coveting through two scenes that we find in Luke chapter 12. You have a, an extra handout there with all kinds of notes. If it seems like I'm making a, a wild-eyed jump, if you're new here uh, to our journey through the Ten Commandments, I think that will connect a lot of the dots for you, as well as give you some added resources if you just want to study and meditate this week with the Lord on some of these ideas. It'll take you a lot further. Anyway, assuming the dots are connected for us, Luke 12 is where I want to go and look at two scenes where the lawgiver, Jesus himself, addresses some things that I think are at the heart of this very issue. And then I want to end with where I think the third person of the Trinity would end, the Holy Spirit, and where he would take us when it comes to this struggle. So we'll do that last. Luke chapter 12, let's pick up then, read the first scene starting in verse 13. We have a question From the crowd. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? And then Jesus said to them, now speaking to the crowd in general, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed or covetousness. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Pause there. First, we see in our passage this morning a warning from the lawgiver Jesus, a warning for hearts that love the wrong things. A warning for hearts that love the wrong things. First, what happens is Jesus is there teaching, and someone in the crowd either steps forward or speaks up, somehow identifies himself. He gets the Lord's attention, and he says, Tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. 
This man comes looking for Jesus' help, which with something that is otherwise a legal matter. This is not an entirely strange thing for an Israelite to come to a rabbi and ask for some judicial action to bring his weight of interpretation of the law to bear upon the situation. This man feels like he has a, a, uh, an injustice done to him that this good rabbi would clearly understand. And so he speaks up about it. Verse 13, uh, Jesus, uh, you got to love his uh, deferring response, who made me your arbitrator? Uh, since when did you pay the fee to uh, retain me as counsel, my brother? Um, go find somebody who will take care of that for you. Is that because Jesus is disinterested in justice? No. Is it because Jesus is incapable of arbitrating? No, absolutely not. It's because this is not what Jesus came for. And in a journey through the book of Luke, we would find many times over statements like, I tell you the truth, the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. And so he didn't come to be our litigator. He didn't come necessarily to solve legal disputes, although there's absolutely a God-glorifying work to be done in that realm. That wasn't the purpose of Jesus in his limited time here on the earth. Jesus came to give the good news of Christ, to warn people of the threat of coming judgment that in their eyes being fixed upon the world, they may have forgotten and become confused and begun to pursue the wrong things. This man has the audacity to speak up in the crowd and say, hey, I need a lawyer. And Jesus says, great, go find one. And then he turns to the crowd and he says, I have a concern here about this man. I didn't say those words. He doesn't say those words, but he says those words. Sometimes friends notice that men's hearts love the wrong things. And then he gives a very dire warning, 15. Beware and be on your guard. Well, which is it? Do you want us to beware or be on our guard? He doubles the warning so that they don't miss it against every form of pleonexia, a word translated greed or covetousness. And there you see the connection of why we're here in this passage because the lawgiver himself addresses the issue in the 10th commandment of the law that he gave. And it's a dire warning. And I love the way he goes about it. He says, look, I know you struggle sometimes with looking on what a neighbor or a friend or a passing stranger or a famous person or whoever, maybe even an enemy, might have. And you might want it because you're playing the game. I know that and I get it. But, but let me just make this easy for you. Let's just say, for the sake of argument, you could have all of that at the snap of fingers. Would you really want it? Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of possessions. What does Christ do? He says, let's just say for the sake of argument, you could win that. You could have that. You could request that. You could be granted the three genie wishes, and boom, it would be yours. Would you have life? He says, you see, that's the issue. This is, this is wisdom. It's life that I want you to have. And that's what I came, that they might have life and have it abundantly. 
a warning for hearts that love the wrong things. Does this match a description of you? Sometimes. Me? Sometimes. Surely. Sometimes we love the wrong things. Praise God for a gracious and compassionate and understanding Savior who says, I know, but let's just try out this game. What if you win at it? You know the old adage that the problem with the rat race is that even if you win, you're still a rat. Kind of the idea here. Even if you win, you still don't have life. And so he goes on and he gives four signs of what it looks like, Jesus does, when covetous reasoning prevails. When covetous reasoning prevails. And Jesus gives four signs. First sign that covetous reasoning might be prevailing in your heart is that protecting becomes hoarding. That's the scenario here. Protecting becomes hoarding. By the way, he's going to use this man uh, who asked the question in a sense as an example, although he, he makes up a scenario and tells a parable about an imaginary man. I, I've, I've wondered as I read this passage if the guy who first asked the question, hey, I need a lawyer, um, if he's still there or if he has gone on because that was the only reason he showed up that day. I don't know, but... Um, in the man he tells the story of. Covetousness prevails. The first warning sign is protecting becomes hoarding. Verse 17, he began reasoning to himself because everything was so successful. He began reasoning to himself saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? There's a sense in which it's entirely reasonable to make good and judicious choices about your investments, about keeping something in savings, about guarding the, the very important um, talents and gifts and treasures that the Lord has put into your hands and mine. The problem, though, is that he doesn't just stop with protecting. He said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build larger ones and there I'll store up all my grain and all my good. And he's telling us where he's going to go with this so that he can sit back and not have to worry. So that that point in his thinking, he will have arrived. Covetous reasoning is, if I can just get enough and gather it around me and keep it safe enough, then I will be safe. Then I'll have all that I want. Fill in the blank for you and for me. If only I had whatever, then it would be enough. Protecting becomes hoarding. Really here, he's struggling with the wrong problem at this point. It's not just protecting wisely what he has. It's seeing to it that he'll never have a need ever again that he might, I don't know, have to trust God with. Second sign is that we focus on the wrong problem of um, protecting our interests rather than guarding our souls. Focus on the wrong problem of protecting our interests rather than guarding our souls. See, you see, this man thinks that his problem is protect my money. 19, he brings up the point. I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. But the reality is, God says in 20, you fool, very night, it tells him the truth, fool, this very night, your soul is required of you. What he what he's focusing on is provision for his body. Now, I'll just say it once as a, as a disclaimer. Clearly, we are not called to just be lazy. 
We are called to work. Clearly, we are called to be industrious. Clearly, we are encouraged to use the gifts that we've been given. But this man is at the point where his entire focus is providing for his body, and the Lord says, you've forgotten the one thing that's so much more important, and that is provision for your soul. This has become an idol you have coveted. Protecting my interests begins to overshadow guarding my soul. So I know I'm preaching to the crowd because you guys are all at church this morning, but where do we invest our time? There will always be other things that will pull us away from our first love. It's not my job to judge where your heart is at in that. Only you can truly know. We can help and encourage. We can inspect the fruit of brothers and sisters, but, but I know there's times and and I get paid to have Jesus as my first love, but there's times when I can pursue the pay or the things or the stuff and just forget my first love. At that point, I'm not guarding my soul. I'm trying to provide for something else. And the Lord says, that's how to play the fool. Third sign, covetous reasoning prevails, is that plans are driven by a bankrupt vision. Plans become driven by a bankrupt vision. 18, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build larger ones. 19, and I'll say, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Does this man have those things yet at that point? No, but that's his life vision right there. Um, I, I hope that Luke 12, 19 is nobody's life verse. Soul, you have much good laid up. You can sit back. This man has a vision, and he's working towards it. But see how small it is, how bankrupt it is. He's fallen hook, line, and sinker for the problem that has plagued every generation. And maybe in some ways for us, we don't struggle as much from the side of weakness. We struggle much more from the side of strength or from success. We by and large, don't live in an era and in a generation that doesn't know where its next meal is coming from. Vast proportions of the human history has lived that way, right? They've lived lives where it was just like, what do you mean next meal? I have two meals a day. We have one meal a day. And then we drink a lot of water before we go to bed and hope we can sleep until our tummy wakes us up or whatever. See, we don't struggle from that end. We struggle from the opposite end, thinking I, I can get pretty much anything I want, and I have the power within my hands to meet whatever needs. So, man, the work is so important. The industry is so important. But it can become a god. And this man's vision is no bigger than his comfort and his stomach. Man, people are dying and going to hell today. I'm not saying that to beat you up. I say that as a shocking reminder to myself. And where am I investing my time? What am I praying for in my next interactions? Am I seeing opportunities as interruptions or am I seeing opportunities for glorious investments? When plans are driven by a bankrupt vision, then covetous reasoning has prevailed. And then the fourth sign is that he has a heart that's tragically small. This man has a heart that is tragically small. Um, I want you to notice a word that is repeated um, a number of times, uh, starting there at the end of 17. My crops, 18, 
my barns, my grain, my goods, 19, my soul, and on it goes, right? There's his tragically small heart. This is how covetous reasoning prevails. Should we have concern for provision for ourselves? Absolutely. But this man is well out of bounds, and that's all he thinks of. Don't worry, the Lord knows exactly what we need for that, and the answer is going to come in just a little bit. The, the end of this man is that his investments will die with him. 19, you fool, pardon me, 20, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. This is a man who looked no further than his last day of breath on this earth. And the Lord says, great, that's exactly the vision that you can successfully win out. You can have that. And that's the point of Christ's parable, right? Let's just say you could totally win at that. Then what? Jesus says, everything that you have will die with you. So we have this warning for us, what it looks like when covetous reasoning prevails. Coveting is a reminder to us to ask ourselves a question, where are we investing? Um, it's easy to put a lot of mental energy and a lot of emotional energy into coveting, Right? Uh, someone has said, and I've said this before, you could probably finish the quote for me, of the seven deadly sins, coveting is, is the most miserable because it's the only one that you don't even enjoy. I mean, pick another sin, at least it's a little bit enjoyable. Coveting is miserable from the word go, and it takes our energies. When you feel the pang of that, when your conscience is pricked by the Spirit, then go back and just do what... Jesus does here, and just walk through the reasoning. Okay, what if I could have that? And what if I could have everything I wanted, and it could just be handed to me as a genie wish? Then what? How big is my heart? What is my vision? Where am I investing? Well, the Lord ends then with this. He ends with this bitter outcome. The bitter outcome is the climax of this warning, 20 and 21, God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The shock of this parable is the cosmic surprise that this man receives in verse 20. He didn't see it coming, that this would be the Lord's response to him. Some in ancient Israel took the, the promises of blessing for law-keeping to see that when men and women in households were blessed, as they interpreted it as a blessing of God, that they were good in every way. So if you found a person who was rich, it was not too much of a flying leap to decide, well, that person must really be in good with God. And so building off of that reasoning, he says, maybe not. Let me tell you about a story of a man who everybody around him would say, that dude, oh, he is a paragon of spirituality. And he says, well, when he stands before me, it's going to be an unwelcome surprise in that day. Because his vision he achieved, his, his purpose he succeeded at, but there was no life in it. This day your life is required of you and you have nothing 
left. In the end, he has walked away from what is really life. And what he's left with is death. And so verse 21, he gets empty rewards. Empty rewards is the other part of the bitter outcome. A cosmic surprise and then empty rewards. Life is found in being rich with God. We cannot stand on the outside and judge another person's heart. There are those who may have more than us, who may be wonderfully generous towards God and imminently pleasing to him. There may be those who have less than us, or we ourselves might say we have less, and yet the issue is our heart is far from God. But the Lord Jesus comes with a stern rebuke to say, I want so much more. I came to give you life and life to the fullest, so don't settle for such small things. A warning for the hearts that love things. Now, this is Christ's warning built upon the foundation of the law and on the foundation of the Tenth Commandment. I've mostly focused on the first use of the law, as Jesus does here, which is that use of the law that shows us our sin and exposes our need for Christ. So we end this first scene and we're like, kind of a bummer, except for the fact that our Lord is telling us, no, no, I have more. But he doesn't end there, thankfully, and the gospel writer Luke doesn't end there. Our Lord turns now to his disciples to give them and Instruction, instruction that leads to life and shows them how to please God and to have his blessing. This, by the way, is really the third use of the law. We have a word to the disciples, and first he tells them, learn, learn what life is for. Starting verse 22, learn what life is for. See, the issue at the end of 20 and 21 is your soul is required of you. There's, there's nothing left. Everything that you invested is now gone. So he wants to point them in how to grow in that. He said to his disciples, 22, For this reason I say to you, do not worry about your life as to what you will eat for your body, as to what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Pause there. Learn what life is for. What does the, the covetous heart need to hear? What, what do I need to be brought up short to see clearly with the Lord's help when, when I find, man, it would be so much easier if I had, you know, that car or that house or this stuff. Or for her, she might say, it would be so much better if I had that hair or that clothing or if I was born, you know, in that estate. Or he would say, if I had those connections or this job. See, coveting is so much more than just the, the stuff. We, we covet other people's personalities, we, we covet other people's intellect. We, we covet their musical gifts. We covet their athletic prowess, and on and on it goes. What my heart needs to hear in that moment is, Frank, you just need to learn what life is for. Because life isn't about the comforts of your flesh. It's, it's The body is not even just what you're going to put on. Even your body has an ontological purpose so that you can express praise and glory to me, so that you can walk through in obedience those things that I have given you that have eternal value. Life is for God, and life is for interacting with people in a way that furthers their relationship with God. That's where he's going to end, by the way. I know that's not in these two verses. Learn what life is for. And then he goes on and he says, he says, win the comparison game. Ah, oh, now we get it. Now we get to it. 
what we need. Win the comparison game. Verse 24, consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap. They have no storeroom nor barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more valuable you are than birds. And which of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his lifespan? If then you cannot do even a very little thing, do you worry about other matters? Why do you worry about other matters? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. But I tell you, not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass in the field, which is alive today and tomorrow, is thrown into the furnace, how much more will he clothe you, you men of little faith? How much more? How much more is the, is the ringing encouragement to call us? You think you have a problem with your desires? Let me just tell you, the problem is not your desires. Your problem is where you're searching. The problem is that you don't desire enough. Insert famous C.S. Lewis quote here, right? about mud pies and visits to the seashore that we've heard probably many times. The encouragement here is to win the comparison game. Why do I say that? I want you to notice the word that's repeated there in verse 24, consider, consider, pause, linger on, think about. And then again in 27, consider, consider in 27, consider the ravens, he says. Consider the lilies. You know what I believe Christ is calling us to do? If I may give a more contemporary reinterpretation, he's telling us to play the comparison game. But he's telling us to win at it. He's saying, what you need to do when you find yourself comparing and and coveting, you need to compare yourself to birds. And you need to compare yourself to flowers. Because what you'll do if you you try that is you'll find that you'll lose. You'll lose every time. Because the birds are way better at it than you are. The flowers are, are way more good at it, way more blessed than you are. The issue is the it. Better at what? Do I want to be rich like a flower? No, I want to drive a Maserati. But the Lord says, no, you do. You want life. And look at how God provides for those who do not toil or worry, but they just trust in him. God provides Linger over the comparison with the flowers and how their father has watched over them. Linger over the comparison for the birds and see how their father has provided for them. That's playing the comparison game to win. Because those creatures, flora and fauna, point us back to the one who takes away our covetousness. and creates in us a new affection for what he wants for us. Because the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And the flowers, they're doing their job best as they can. Birds, doing their job. Us, not so much. I'm, I'm glorifying, you know, a cooler suit or whatever. He ends... Uh, the encouragement there. How much more? How much more? He says twice after each of these cycles. And we're going quickly through this. I know that because there's so much more in here. But he ends in verse 28, the second cycle. And he says, you men of little faith. And that's the issue, isn't it? You see, that's how to win the comparison game. It's, it's to take those thoughts captive and say, you know what? I'm playing the game, aren't I? And I'm feeling a little uncomfortable about it. It's like the Spirit of God is trying to tell me something. Oh, yeah, I'm playing it wrong. I need to be comparing myself to birds and flowers, so that God can increase my faith. Because when I see them and I see what God does for them, how, how their Father takes care of them, 
Well, then I realize that that's what I have too. I, I don't want the, the ravens to mock me and say, why the long face, pastor? <laughs> why such a heavy burden, child of God? <laughs> why such overwhelmed, stressed out, running about, crushing yourself? Oh, I forgot, you don't have a good father in heaven, do you? I don't want the birds to tell me that. I need a little more faith to see he provides for them and he can do it for me. The comparison game is meant to conceive faith in us. The comparison game played rightly is meant to nourish faith in us where we say, you know what? By the grace of God, he's kept every promise. He's provided in every way. It doesn't mean I'm promised tomorrow. It doesn't mean that everything in my relationships is going swimmingly. It does mean that God is utterly faithful. He will be glorified, and I have all I need. But that takes faith sometimes. And he means to grow it in us by the comparison game. Jesus then also encourages us to engage, to engage in the contest of non-trivial pursuit. I know you've played the board game before, but this is the contest of non-trivial pursuit that he encourages us to play Pick up in verse 29. And do, you, and do not seek what you will eat and what you will drink, and do not keep worrying. For all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek. But your Father knows that you need these things. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. What is non-trivial pursuit Notice that that's the issue here in this passage. The issue is, is that of, of seeking. Verse 29, do not seek. Verse 31, but seek. This is the seeking with our emotions. When we're coveting, we're going after something with our intentions and with our thoughts. We dwell on it. Seek not what you are to eat. Why? Because you don't need to eat? No, I'm fairly sure you're going to need to eat this week. But what's the encouragement? Father... Knows. He knows. And he knows that this is a natural pursuit. The things that are short-sighted, the things that won't spill over into eternity, we know that this is the natural pursuit. Jesus says this is what all the nations eagerly go after. And they'll try and get you to come along with them. And they will strive, and they will wish, and they will dream and they will demand. What we seek is a glimpse into what our heart loves. That's what he's going to capitalize on in just a moment, but it's worth saying it here. What they're seeking is what they're loving, and so the same for us. And so when we find ourselves coveting, the thing that brings us back to reality is, in this moment, Lord, what do I love? By the way, it's a great test. Uh, th there's a great book that I haven't read, um, but I'm pretty, pretty certain it's a great book. Um, because it's by Jerry Bridges, number one, and he's great. I think it's Bridges. Um, it's called uh, Redeeming Ambition or something like that. It's a book about ambition, and Bridges goes to great lengths. I've read excerpts. I've heard it commented on to make the point that believers are to be ambitious in all the right ways. So that's not today's sermon. just want to mention that. My point is what Christ's encouragement in this passage is, is to be able to discern when ambition becomes an idol. If you're, if you're like, hey, dude, I'm totally on the other end of this and I need more ambition, great, go read that book. 
Um, the tenth commandment and the encouragement for us is to be able, when that ambition slash idol comes to mind, to be able to litmus test it with the thought, Lord, what do I love? Right now, what do I love? Pretty sure the Lord is big enough and the Holy Spirit is strong enough to help you and to help me because I need to, in that pursuit, figure out what he wants me to know and see in that. Engage in the contest of non-trivial pursuit. Well, the passage begins, this second scene ends where the second scene began. So fill in the same blank for 33 and 34. Learn what life is for. You see, that's the bookend to this passage about not worrying and about lilies and ravens. Learn what life is for. 33, sell your possessions and give to charity. Make yourselves money belts which do not wear out an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Again, we haven't barely touched on the depth of these passages in Luke 12 this morning. I just, in relation to the 10th commandment, want to see what Jesus does in, in um, teasing out that idea for us. And, and where does he go with it? Well, when we struggle to covet, when we're seeking after something else, where does the not worrying and the encouragement of Christ ends? It ends with a focus on whom? On others, actually. Sell and give. Huh. Is that not a focus on others? Is that not the exact same focus of the 10th commandment. You shall not covet, covet your neighbor's wife or house or donkey or servant or anything else. It's the climactic verse of the love neighbor table of the law. And so here the Lord Jesus turns his followers to the same thing. Just like the 10th commandment, it's about eternal affections. It's about a new heart, which really is exactly what lies underneath the Ten Commandments. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Coveting just reveals where our treasure is, doesn't it? When we struggle then with this, because I will struggle this week. At some point, I'm going to compare myself to somebody or something. I'm going to want something that somebody else has, something that I'm quite convinced I deserve. Where in that moment should I go? Where should you go? Where would the Holy Spirit take us? I think, because it's underlying this entire passage, I think the Holy Spirit would take us to dwell on contentment. It's right here in this passage. Contentment is found in the Father's good provision. His care is mentioned in verse 24. They have no storeroom, and yet God feeds them. His knowledge is there in verse uh, 30. All the nations of the world eagerly seek these things, but your Father knows that you need them. And then the Father's generosity is there in verse 33. Make yourselves money belts which do not wear out an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near nor moth destroys. Because the Father is he's giving you the kingdom He's giving you eternal rewards. So why settle for the pursuit of something that's so much less? And so rest his provision, his care, his knowledge of you, and his generosity. So let me just close quickly with a couple of other verses. You can just jot these down, and I'll read them to you. 
rather than covet, where can you go? A couple of verses that might help fight this battle if you want to consciously fight it this week. Rather than covet, revel in the Lord's good provision. I think that's what Jesus is arguing. Luke 12, rather than covet, revel in the Lord's good provision. Hear these words, brothers and sisters, and and just uh, exult in them with me because they're true of us in Christ. Psalm 16, verses 5 and 11, jot that down if you want. Psalm 16, verses 5 and 11. The psalmist writes these words, The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. There's his provision. You support my lot. And then he ends Psalm 16, verse 11. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. Those are truths for us to claim and dwell in when we find our hearts turn towards temporary and self-serving, short-sighted things. And then another passage, Psalm 8411. Psalm 8411. Here is the fullness of the psalmist's provision in, in God's goodness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. God has placed in the human heart a longing. I believe that all of our longings ultimately at some level have the Lord at their root. And even those who don't know the Lord, though they may have twisted that longing, though they have may have tried to fill it with something else, there's always a residue of the Lord's design in our lives. And we have a longing for life, life that is life indeed. The longing is not wrong, but it often rears its ugly head in our covetousness, in our saying, I just need to have this to be fulfilled. And Jesus steps forward and he says, let me just warn you because this is so deadly. Let me just warn you because even if you had all of it, is that life? Would this be life? He said, come to me because I care, because I know, because I give generously. And that's a great God who we can entrust our deepest longings for real life. Stand with me. Let's close together in prayer. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you that you have given Christ your Son so that even though we can't earn all of these gifts, the wholeness of eternity, forgiveness of sin, shame stripped away, the adoption as sons, fullness in your presence, life eternal with you, and even now, the sense of peace and contentment, regardless of our circumstance, Lord, though we struggle, we struggle. But, Lord, you give it graciously. We can't earn it. But, Lord Jesus, you who gave the law also came to die as a man under the law to set us free. Set us free now to the law of Christ. Lord, if any here just only know the burden and don't know the freedom, we pray that they would admit their need. They would come to you with their deep longings and they would trust you knowing that you can satisfy the depths of their soul. And for us, Lord, this week, we're gonna struggle. We're gonna play this game. Lord, we wanna win. We wanna win at this comparison game and make it serve your eternal purposes so that it just does jujitsu on the enemy's attacks and it leaves us in a place growing and nourished and rejoicing in faith. Thank you, our God, for this longing you have created in us. We'll praise you for it and we'll thank you. All to your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Don't forget.